Hey there, my name is Carrie Siever. I am a structural engineer with Vector Collaborative and also your host of the Unboxing Project. I am so glad that you're here joining us for season number two at Keep Coming Back. Today we have Holly Elbert with us. She is a professional engineer, mechanical engineer, and also a lead accredited professional. Um, she is a partner at BBS and she got her BS in mechanical engineering from Iowa State University. She is the past president of the Iowa chapter of ASHRAE which is a mechanical engineering association, professional association. She is also an ACE mentor. Um, so I believe that's architectural construction engineering. Yep, exactly. Okay, so mentorship program for young people that are just uh, beginning to think about getting involved with that field. Um, she is also an avid guitar and banjo player. She has several cats uh, that might be wandering in and out of the screen here. So she uh, is very fond of her pets. And then she also likes to uh, smoke meat on the grill in her spare time. And she is a bicyclist. So Holly, thank you for joining today. Thank you. Appreciate being here, Carrie. Yeah, maybe if you want to just get started with um, kind of Starting out, kind of your backstory and uh, what led you into mechanical engineering? Sure. So I grew up in Des Moines, Iowa. I went to Roosevelt High School and some predecessors to that, Callanan and Greenwood. And I think a lot of, like a lot of people that end up in this career, I was one of those kids that was good at math and science. Um, one thing that was kind of unique and an advantage about growing up in Des Moines is that they would identify some of those kids that had high math aptitudes early on. So for example, in sixth grade, I basically got lumped into this group of math nerds um, throughout the Des Moines district. Um, and from sixth grade on, we uh, were in kind of an accelerated math program. So um, during high school um, and also eighth grade, I also went to Central Academy. Um, which for those of you who don't know is, is a location in Des Moines that provides advanced placement classes for all the kids in the district. So even if you go to North or Hoover or Lincoln, um, you have an opportunity if your own school doesn't offer advanced placement classes to take them there. So, so I took AP math classes um, at Central and then I, I did my sciences actually at, at Roosevelt, but um, enjoyed it, was good at it. Um, at that time, you know, the choices for what do you do if you're good at math and science are to, you know, kind of go into more uh, uh, of a biological sciences degree or, or, or into engineering. Um, I also am a, we'll say, a mechanically inclined person. Um, I, I like doing woodworking projects, even as a little kid. Um, would help my dad with doing deck builds. I built some little furniture pieces. Um, when I was in high school, I worked as a bike mechanic at a bike shop. So that plus the math and science aligned me nicely with, you know, going forward with engineering. So when I graduated from high school, that's what I did, um, accepted, uh, went to Iowa State, started at Iowa State and then attended that for all my engineering years. Um, at Iowa State, I didn't declare mechanical right off the bat, um, I went in with an open major, but um, I think it was during my sophomore year, I did declare mechanical. And really the reason I chose that were, were a couple of reasons. It's one of the broadest engineering programs you could choose, you know, even if you choose to be a mechanical engineer, you can, you can still do something like machine design, you can still do manufacturing, um, you can even to, degree, to a degree do aerospace stuff, um, you can do building design. So even though I picked mechanical, I still had like a really wide swath of careers I could go into and hadn't really narrowed it down yet. Um, and I, I think I would have also been really happy, happy in civil. I, I think that resonates quite a bit with me too. Um, don't remember specifically why, but I didn't, I didn't choose that. And then electrical, 
that was over my head not being able to see what's happening with electricity was kind of a stopper for me um so uh mechanical it was and yeah graduated from iowa state in four years and then took my first job back in my hometown of des moines and uh, was there for five years and then i moved over to bbs um, and have been there now for 15 years so when you graduated, um, so your degree was kind of broad, right, as far as mechanical engineering. So the avenue that you could take from your degree was was pretty wide open. What made you choose to go into the building design side of things? Good question. So um, as you kind of advance towards your senior year, you you will have taken a lot of classes that are kind of all over the breadth of mechanical engineering. But then as you advance to your senior year, you kind of decide, am I going to do some more like specific studies in a, in, in a specific field? So um, the so you get exposed to all of it through your education initially. Um, but what also helps is doing internships or co-ops. So I was lucky in that I had, I think three, internships or co-ops one was a co-op for an entire year um, two semesters and then my two other ones were just summer internships um, my first summer internship was at a company in des moines um, that's now called i think bf goodrich aerospace they make uh, jet fuel nozzles for airplanes um, so that was a lot of um, design um, there's a, a manufacturing piece in that too a little bit of aerospace um, sounds cool, but for whatever reason, it wasn't really resonating with me. It wasn't, you know, it, it was fine, but it wasn't really what I wanted to do forever. Um, my co-op for a year was at a power plant up in Minnesota, and um, that was actually really interesting. That's kind of, you know, for mechanical engineering, that kind of falls on the, the, the heat transfer side and the fluid dynamics side. Um, and that that was actually really interesting but what i didn't like about it was the um sometimes odd work hours and uh, sometimes tough work conditions um you if we did testing on the plant we would usually have to do it in the middle of the night when the load is low so if you mess something up you wouldn't you know shut down power to the whole city of minneapolis um and then physically being in the plant, you know, you're around loud equipment, you're around a lot of heat producing equipment, you're wearing protective clothing. So it's kind of, it's physically can be taxing, um, which I didn't really want to do as my job. Um, so after that, I kind of backed away from that. I did my last internship in a position that I currently do. And uh, that was with uh, uh, architecture engineering firm out in Seattle. Washington. Um, so I worked with them. They um, and did mechanical design for buildings. So that would be heating, ventilation, and air conditioning, plumbing design, fire protection de design. Working with working with architects, working with structural engineers, working with electrical engineers to basically put the mechanical components into the building to keep people comfortable. Um, and I like that for for multiple reasons. One was I kind of like the desk work <laughs> for whatever reason I don't really like to get hot and sweaty and dirty while I'm doing work for my career I it's weird because I have no problem doing it when I'm doing my own home DIY projects but <laughs> but for my career I, I guess I don't want to do it for somebody else um so I like the desk work um and it was also different every time every building is is different every HVAC system, every, you know, heating and cooling system we put into a building, it is not a repeat. There, there's definitely themes that kind of come across every time, but um, it, there's never a copy. It's not like you get to run one prototype and then just repeat it over and over, which is kind of what I saw in, in manufacturing and, and machine design. Um, so I like that continuous change and everything being new each time. Um, I also really like working with architects. Um, they are not like engineers <laughs> in, in the way they think. Um, and that really resonated with me, um, trying to kind of figure out what's 
what's going through their head about why they're trying to make something look the way it is and make sure that what you're doing is helping to support what they're trying to achieve. Be that uh, you know an aesthetic look they wanna have happen or um, the use of the building, actually making it you know easier to find your way around the building um, or you know how you utilize the space, you know, trying to watch somebody kind of figure that out and then you being able to play a part and helping to support that was was interesting for me. So after that final internship, um, jumping back to my schooling, I did that right before my senior year. And when you go into your senior year, like I mentioned, you can kind of pick those, they call them technical electives that really get into the more of the weeds of a specific field. So I picked um, a couple tech electives that started to align with that. One was essentially a semester or two semesters of what I do right now to kind of give me a, a school training of that. Um, and then I, I did one too on power plant design, but as you can tell, that isn't what I ended up doing <laughs> at the yeah. end of the day, so. I love how you said that, how like it's it's never the same. Like both of us have been doing this for, you know, 20 years plus, right? And I feel the same way about structural engineering where it's like, we're learning stuff every day, which is why we do it. And maybe sometimes why it's a little frustrating because it's like, man, if I could just slap something on this that I've done before, that'd make it so much easier, but then it would get boring and then it wouldn't be fulfilling, right? So um, I love how you said that, like, that's so the truth, like we are constantly challenged, right? And every project is something brand new and you bring all of the experience from before, but it's a completely different solution or at least a little bit different solution and a customized approach to every building, right? Right. And we also, we often get to work with, you know, not just the design team, but we do oftentimes get to work with the the owner or the client. So, you know, let's say the school district or the principal who's actually going to be involved with the building that's getting built for them, the teachers that are going to be there. So you're, you're, you're trying to gain from them and, and learn from them and, and respond to them with a design that's going to meet what you're hearing from them. Um, and that's always fun to me too, because you're, again, you're not talking to a bunch of engineers and, you know, going into the technical details of things, you, you get to you know, interact with these people that are actually going to get to, or who will use your buildings every day and trying to make sure that you're giving them something that's going to help them do their job better. Right. That's so cool. So how do you think your job has changed since you started like day one, straight out of college to now? Um, I mean, everyone will probably say the technology piece of it is different. I think that's true for us. You know, when we started when I started, we were all using a program called AutoCAD, same with you, Carrie, I'm sure, which is kind of a two-dimensional level way to create construction plans, what you're gonna build off of. Um, now we frequently use a program that's basically takes that 2D and has made it into a 3D model. Um, so you're, you're actually working in a model in the building and then you can still create plans out of that, but you're actually kind of, your design is in this, this 3D model. And in that model, it's not just your stuff, you know, it's everybody else's stuff. So you can start to see if, you know, my, if I have a giant duct for heating and cooling that's, you know, going through this room and, you know, you carry have this giant girder that's also a, a support structure that's coming through. And well, look, they just collided. <laughs> well, I'm gonna, <laughs> we're gonna have to do something about that, you know? Yes. So when we, did, when we did our design in the flat level, the engineers using just the 2D modeling, the engineers would have to, or, and the architects would have to be able to read through those plans to pick up on that. You know, you're gonna tell me on your plan. So the bottom of that big piece of steel is gonna be at 12 feet. And, and if I know my duck's also gonna be at 12 feet, well, that's how I would know it, but I would have to gather that from actually, you know, going through that plan set repeatedly as things change and picking up on it. Now it's like, we can run a program that says, you know, you got, you got 50 collisions or, or whoever's building my model for me will oftentimes notify me of that. And then we'll start to come up with a solution. So that's maybe one way. Um, the other thing is just, everything is so much faster. Um, and the expectations of when you start a project from when 
it's going to be built, I feel like continues to get compressed because we keep compressing it. You know, people raise the bar, you know, we only have this much time to build it. So can you do it? Well, if you want the job, then you better do it. <laughs> so we kind of, we continue to like compress that design time and to compress that construction time, which I mean is good if you get something quicker, but oftentimes we, we miss some of those coordination items or, or vetting of, you know, things that the owner wants in there. We might not be able to draw that out because we, you know, only had three months to them instead of five months. So that's kind of a pro and con, I think, on the, the increased speed of the past 20 years or so of how construction goes up. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I feel that too. Um, <laughs> I got, or I, I had a conversation yesterday with someone of like, yeah, our backlog, sometimes our backlog can only be like a month or two. Um, you know, like we just don't get that backlog because when people call us, they want it right away. So it's like we either yep. say yes or no. <laughs> no one think in our world, not very many people, I mean, for bigger projects, yes. And for public projects, yes. But like, for the smaller commercial projects, like they're looking out maybe three months. Not right. they're not looking out to hire a structural engineer or a mechanical engineer in six months. Right. It's like, hey, we need this as soon as possible. When can you do it? <laughs> yeah. And if you can't do it, I'll talk to somebody else. So if you want to retain that business, you got to figure out a way to do it. So I think we all have been doing that somewhat to our own detriment, but you know, it's what it takes to keep bringing business in the door. So yeah, it's a juggling act for sure, huh? <laughs> yep. How about mechanical equipment? Has that changed a lot in the last I would say number of years? I won't give a number, but I'll just say certain numbers. It, it's funny because um, there's some things about mechanical design that it, it's like fashion in a way. <laughs> there's some things that become cyclical about uh, preferred technologies so I mean this is going to be kind of a, a to a degree and degree an egregious example but um, you know before we had air conditioning for buildings what they used to do in a lot of buildings that were built from like 1900 to 1920 is they would arrange a bunch of air shafts that are vertical in the building that would bring air in low with big fans and then basically you know distribute it to the rooms and then it would rise up through the top of the roof after it basically went through the rooms and then goes out. So you, so you have this big chimney effect of, you know, air continuing to turn over um, in the buildings. And, and that had two functions. One was to make sure we had fresh air or ventilation in the spaces. And two, it, it did provide some cooling to a degree basically so people could feel the air movement like a fan. Um, it would it would provide cooling. So um, you know, now we have air conditioning, but, and we've had different ways of how we put that in the buildings. You know, I would say the like 1950 to probably 1990 application was like, blow it all in there, dump it in the ceiling, and then it leaves, but you're like blowing cold air in, fan forced cold air, quite a bit of it. Um, but there's some technologies out there now that are bringing it in lower and in bigger volumes and slower and basically allowing it to kind of go through the space and then distribute back up and and in that way especially this is definitely a good covid design is you get more air turnover and you get a better sweep going from the bottom of the room all the way out the top so it, it has a cold component to it. at least it's cooler now than in the 1920s where they didn't have a way to bring down the temperature of the air um, but it's still kind of following the similar airflow principle. Gotcha. Um, so where do the units go in that situation? Uh, wherever the architect will let us put them. Okay. <laughs> They're probably lower though, right? They're more- Oh, you're talking power. about in the room. Yes, I would say, sorry, I thought you meant like the air moving piece of equipment. No, if you're in the room, yes, it would be like a, you know, like maybe a perforated opening in the corner of the room. And then the air as it leaves the room, there'd maybe be another type of opening at the at the high level to basically kind of allow that sweep through there. Um, I guess another big change, I mean, everything has increased in efficiency. I shouldn't knock that. You know, what 
the chillers we have today that are what's producing chilled water to help keep us cool, um, the efficiencies on those are like dramatically improved from what they were 20 years ago. Um, we also have a way right now to recover energy from air as it leaves the building. So it used to be, you know, as I was describing, it would just leave the building. We'd bring in cold air and it'd leave. So in the winter for sure, and then sometimes in the summer, you get a better benefit in the winter because of the bigger temperature delta. But you can you can basically pass that air across a, a medium of sorts that picks up the, the either the hot or the cold energy in it and it basically transfers it over to the air that's coming in the building. It doesn't transfer the air, but it's kind of taking the energy out of the air and then transferring into what's coming in. So that's, that's called an energy recovery device or energy recovery piece of equipment. That's something that I think when I had started was just kind of coming out, but they hadn't really mastered yet the, the way to transfer that energy, um, the materials to use, how to do it. Do you do it with like a wheel rotating? Do you do it with like some type of a plate? Um, they, both those options are still in existence right now, but they have improved, um, you know, that energy that they can actually pull out of it today. Gotcha. Well, that's super fascinating because like all of that stuff affects room layouts and where, where everything goes in the building, right? And like that whole piece that you're talking about, like there's probably a cost associated, I mean, there is a cost associated with, with capturing that energy. So then like getting the whole cost of the process down so that it's cheaper to do that than it is to just let the energy go, right? Yep. And then where do you locate, you know, the air that's coming in the building versus the air that's leaving the building? If, if you're trying to capture all that kind of in one location, you want to start to bring that together. So you're either doing it with, you know, big ducts that transfer or you're physically trying to do it, you know, on the roof or in the basement, if you have a big area well to bring air in. So, um, mm -hmm. so yeah, that definitely impacts building layout. And it, ideally we try to have those conversations early in the design with the architect to try and accommodate that. Sometimes we get involved a little bit too late and we're kind of just having to deal with what, what is laid out and then be creative and how we're gonna apply that system and try to do it with the least amount of cost, but still achieve the goal that we're trying to do with energy recovery. I love that you just used that word, Holly, creative. <laughs> As engineers, we have to be creative too sometimes. <laughs> we absolutely do, yep. <laughs> so what would you say is a major risk that you've had to take to get where you are now? Um, so I think there's, it's funny, I work for, company right now that's 125 years old um and with that amount of longevity there's there's usually a little bit of risk aversion um so i would say most of the current leaders including myself are are not overly risky people um but i became a partner three years ago um which was kind of a eye-opening experience going from the outside as an employee to a leadership role on the inside. Um, there's, there's a, there, there can be a lot of tension um, when you're working with four other business partners of how you want to move the company forward. But at the end of the day, you all need to have a unified front. You all need to present together to your employees, to your clients, like this is who we are, this is what we're doing. So behind closed doors, you have to arrive at some level of agreement. So one of the things I did that was probably, I don't know if I call it risky, but it was definitely challenging, um, was my first year as being a partner, we did a brand refresh. So we examined our, and this is totally not engineering. I mean, this is more business development and marketing, but when you're a business owner of an engineering firm, this is, you're going to have to do this. You're going to have to wear several hats. And, and this is one of them. We didn't, we ourselves didn't design the new brand, but we obviously had to decide the way we wanted it to go and to communicate that to the, the team that was helping us do that. Um, anyway, so my first year as a partner, I had one other guy 
that was also on board with that at the partnership level. Um, and but I ended up kind of leading the charge on it because I had the connection with the with the branding group that we were working with. Um, so that was uh, that uncovered a lot of things that I didn't think would be a big deal. Um, you know, there was some fights about colors and fonts and you know letterhead that you know it's like okay is the issue really that the color is you don't like the the green here or is there like something else going on that I'm not picking up on um or maybe that's just like how these meetings go and I didn't really know that so um my it was eye-opening that first year of just kind of experiencing that conflict and trying to comfortably move forward and maintain a positive relationship with my business partners and to again come forward with a you know a unified front to everyone that was viewing us so we did complete our brand refresh um we did not do a, a huge change of our name but um we still had we got a we got a new logo out of it new colors um instead of going by brooksburg styles architecture engineering llp we basically shortened it to BBS Architects Engineers, um, talking more about who we are, architects and engineers, versus what we do. That was very intentional. Um, and then we did we did a lot of updates to our website. We updated all of our um, marketing materials, stuff we use when we respond to, you know, clients' requests for proposals. So, so it was a pretty significant undertaking, and it was interesting to kind of be in that room and compromising and but at the same time also just sometimes having to roll over and move forward with something <laughs> so, well all that so, is so subject like it's all like when we do engineering it's very objective typically i mean you know like there's typically a route to the right answer or something in that realm anyway but with that like it's all subjective based on feelings and what feels right when you look at it and so that's a completely different thing and then trying to be diplomatic in that space i can't imagine what that's like <laughs> yep yep so that was uh, we made it through i i feel like i i, I took some good punches and kind of learned how to deal with that conflict um had some growing pains out of it i still obviously continue to to deal with it but i feel like each time that something happens i'm getting a little bit better at it figuring out how to communicate, figuring out how to push initiatives that I feel would benefit the company um, and to get others on board with me. So um, the other risk I was gonna mention too, and this is this is an everyday thing, it, but um, I'm, I'm gay, I'm married to a woman. I, I have been for a long time, I've known that. Um, have been my whole career, obviously. So, you know, I don't necessarily, share that with all my clients but um for sure everyone at my work knows that but that's also you know something that kind of happens over time i'm not you know i don't have big coming out party announcements but you know when you're talking with people about what do you do in this weekend who are your friends who are your family you know it, it comes up and you want to share that you don't want to hide that um so that's always a risk that i that i take whenever i am working with someone new whenever we get a new employee um, or a client that I become close with that, you know, we're having more of those informal conversations, I'll often share that. So, you know, that's, that's always kind of a risk that's out there that somebody might not understand or have an issue with it, but it's also who I am. And usually if we're to that point where we're being social and friendly with each other, they already know who I am. And hopefully it's just another piece that that is not going to bother them. Sure. So I have a question for you regarding that. Do you feel like with time, like over the last, you know, 15 years or whatever, do you feel like that risk has become or feels like it's less of a risk than it did say 15 years ago? Like, do you feel like just like it's less of a risk, I guess? I would say for me personally, yes, but I probably have also to, um, an unconscious degree set myself up in play, places of employment or friends or environments where it's already less of a risk. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but I would say, I would say probably in general. Yes, okay. it is. Okay. Well, I think there's also another piece of it of as we get older, we get more just comfortable and in who we are. Right. Yep. So there's just a piece of it of like, this is who I am and take it or leave it. And if you leave it, that's fine. I'll go <laughs> like, you know, like I don't know. I just, I feel personally like the older I get, the more I feel more comfortable in my own skin and more comfortable with sharing those personal pieces of myself with other people and not really caring (laughs) what they think. (laughs) Yep. Yep. I I would agree. I think, I think people say that I'm 42, I guess I'll just share that. So I think a lot of people say like, 50 is kind of the, the, the age where most people like kind of stop giving a crap about what people think about them. I'm not quite that there. I mean, I would say if anything, probably this <laughs> working through my partnership leadership challenges has probably been a bigger part of um, um, kind of understanding who I am and being comfortable with that. So yeah, a little bit. Yeah, we're, we're about at the same same stage that I'm 41. So kind of right <laughs> at the same same stage of okay so moving on what is something or multiple things that you're passionate about so things that drive you things that get you excited um I have a lot of hobbies that are outside of my career um so this one is a pretty typical one that I think a lot of engineers have but um I'm definitely an avid DIYer or do-it-yourselfer um doing my own home projects and um, we also bought a property in our hometown of Ames just last year um, that actually happened to be a, ha- a house that I house I ever owned by myself. Um, we bought it back, got it fixed up, and we're now renting it. So, you know, kind of an investment property, but also a really fun chance to, to really throw some time into some of those home improvement projects beyond our own house, which, which was actually perfect last year when we couldn't really <laughs> do much of anything else. We'd go over and work on, work on the rental house every night. So, so that's one of the hobbies. Um, the other ones are, I'm, I'm really enjoy playing music. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not in a touring band <laughs> or anything like that, but I, I definitely have, you know, been in some, less formal groups that I've that I just kind of get together and play with um I play banjo I play guitar um when I was growing up I learned how to play the piano um I was in high school orchestra and college orchestra none of these things I'm not like super good at any of these instruments but but I love playing them I love listening to music I love listening to to new music to live music so um that that's really something that's a hobby that I'm passionate about and I enjoy. Um, And one of the other hobbies is um, bicycling. I mentioned earlier that I I worked as a bike mechanic when I was in high school. You know, that didn't just come out of the blue. I'd I'd always loved bikes and road bikes when I was younger. Um, And that's continued to this day. Um, My wife and I have a tandem bicycle um, that we've had for about I think seven years now. So we whenever we do our road riding, that's usually what we do the road riding on. Um, and I just got a new mountain bike last spring or this spring. Um, you know, Iowa isn't exactly a hotbed of mountain biking activity, but which is why I hadn't gotten a bike, but honestly it's improved tremendously. And probably the last five years, there's a group in Des Moines that's done a lot of trail construction, um, that, uh, Ewing park science center, there's a place in Indianola. There's a few places up here in Ames where I live. Um, so there's definitely opportunities. But um, tying into the mountain biking, my wife and I also own a small RV that we like to travel in, another passion there. Um, and as we've traveled, you know, you start to find some really awesome mountain biking spots in, in Utah and in Arkansas and parts of Colorado. So, so that was also the impetus to get it as I wanted to start doing some more riding in those parts of the country so sure oh and then cats you mentioned at the beginning i will just you know we have to here yes so the one cat sleeping here he's black even 
He looks, like a, he looks like a black sweatshirt most of the time, but <laughs> love it. But love yeah, it. I, have, I have four cats and okay, and um, I don't have kids, but the um, but the cats are definitely they're my little fur babies, I guess. Do they all have different personalities? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that that one sleeping over there. He's he's the old man. He's super laid back. He's I've had him since he was a kitten for about seventeen years. So okay. Um, yeah. I love how his nap spots on your desk. It is. He got, he has a bed there. Yeah. Designated. <laughs> Great. <laughs> uh, okay. So like the hobbies that you described, how do you feel like they, or do you feel like they, um, complement your career? Like, are there things that you figure out or solve or like, are, how do they intertwine, I guess, or do they intertwine? Or I think, I think they, the interest, all that interest and all the way my brain works has basically has kind of made them all similar. I'm when I, in college, I know when I was in the high school or I'm sorry, in the college orchestra, so many of the other people in that orchestra were also engineers. So, I mean, a lot of people hear that, that a music brain is very similar to a math and science brain. So I don't think that's really a surprise that I have that alignment there. Um, but, and then the D, like I mentioned, the, you know, the home building projects, I think I was thinking about that before this interview, why, why so many engineers like to, are so into their own house projects. And I think it's because all day we spend basically designing and building somebody else's project, um, <laughs> that we don't get to use, um, granted we're getting paid for it, but we don't get to use it. And I think at the end of the day, we really like to feel some, um, you know, satisfaction and, and creating some of our own projects that we actually get to use. And, and it's fun to use tools too. And honestly, you know, I, like I said, I'm a mechanical engineer, so I don't really get a lot into concrete, but I poured my own driveway with the help of a friend. And to a degree that taught me like more about concrete <laughs> than, than I've learned, than I learned through any other job. And I've, I've used that actually when I've had conversations with with architects or even contractors when they're doing a portion of the job that's concrete that might have some relationship to what I'm doing. I feel like I kind of have an understanding of, of what might go into the time that's required for it. Um, so I, I think some of, the, some of those DIY projects do start to feed into your career just because you have a hands-on experience and then you can kind of relate better to the people that are building your project. Yeah, I think it's so important um, for both mechanical and structural for people to like when they're starting out in college, maybe, or when they first start out to have that kind of field experience to, I mean, just to shadow with a contractor for a day to see how everything goes together. Because I think just like you described, it helps us so much when we're doing it on the paper or in our model um, to, to understand the, or like the, um, the way that it's implemented. So the implementation of it, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Right. And I never did get to do that as an internship or a portion of my career. I do have peers that that do what I do now, do building design. But at one point, they might have had like three or five years at a contractor, or they might have had three or five years at a manufacturer of mechanical equipment. And they definitely do bring a more in-depth perspective to some of those jobs than, than me, who's kind of been siloed in the design side for most of my life. So, so yeah, you have a really good point there. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's awesome though, that, that they have that experience or that that was an opportunity for them, but you know, just like, I think with you, like with the, you know, doing the home improvement stuff, like that's helping to get um, some of that kind of construction experience too. Right. So. Yep. Yep. On a, on a minor level, but I wouldn't entirely discount it. So. Yes. Well, I surveyed for a summer, which doesn't really pertain to structural engineering so much, but like, I do feel like I have a little more um, empathy for people that have to be working outside on days like today, all the time. 100%. Yep. Yep. So, um, okay. So if you could give advice to someone that's just starting out in their career in mechanical engineering, what advice would you give them? Um. I'll give advice that I don't think just applies to engineers. I think it could apply to anyone, but um, don't 
be worried or concerned that you don't know everything. You're not supposed to know everything at the start of your career. Even when you're 20 years in, you don't know everything. But I remember when I did my internships and even, you know, my first couple of years um, with the consulting firm that I had this fear of like picking up the phone and calling people to have a discussion. Um, usually it was like a contractor or maybe somebody who's helping me pick me mechanical equipment. And I'm like, geez, these guys are just going to see right through me that I have no idea what's going on. But you know what? That's kind of to be expected when you start your career at least in, in consulting engineering, when you come out of school, like you maybe have like five or 10% of the training you need to have to really start doing the job. The rest of it, you're gonna pick up a lot of it in that first five years. And, and it's, it's gonna take a long time before you really feel like you can kind of roll with your own projects and you're not going over to your boss or somebody else, you know, every couple hours or so to, to ask a question. So you know, don't feel bad that you don't know everything when you start. You're not supposed to. Don't feel bad when you're 20 years in that you don't know everything. I mean, there's things that some of my younger engineers have had experience with that I haven't. And if I need help figuring out how to do that, something they have knowledge in, I have no problem going and fully admitting, you know, hey, I might be a pay grade above you, but can you help me with this? I've never done this. And, you know, I think having that vulnerability kind of helps. <laughs> it, it helps them to feel a little bit boosted that they know something. But I think it also helps everybody to see, like, you're not going to have all the answers all the time. And it's okay to just say that as long as you have a plan to go and figure it out. I think that's a great point, too, because, like, as now that you're on, like, the business ownership side, too, like, you don't want everyone to be experts in everything. You want people that have their specialized things. So as a collective, you're much stronger than just like a broad knowledge of a bunch of things. Like you, I think that's such an important thing from just from an employer standpoint and from just the collective standpoint. And that's so like, you're right. You have to be vulnerable to ask for help, but you're not going to be an expert in everything that your company does. No, right. Doesn't matter. And we have to be able to rely on other people to give us that information. I think that's such a great point. Yep. Awesome. Okay. So are you ready for some, well, actually I want to ask you first, who inspires you? That's a big question that I want to make sure that we get in here. So sure. Um, that I, I don't know if during COVID, I started to listen to, actually during COVID and the last election cycles, we'll say that, I started to, and you know, and also when I became a partner, I started to listen to a lot of autobiographies on books, basically, um, by stronger women. So, like, for example, recently, I, I listened to Abby Wambach's book, Wolfpack, yeah, um, Megan Rapinoe's book, um, Hillary Clinton is really interesting to listen to. I've, I've read a couple of her books. I listened to her podcast. Just the, you know, say what you will about her politics. It's, it's really um, interest, not interesting, but um, great to see somebody that has been true to themselves their whole career unabashedly um, and still is today. Um, that, that's something I would say I strive to do. Um, my natural personality makes me conflict averse and a people pleaser, but it's sometimes hard to, if you do that, you sometimes will lose a little bit of yourself in that. So I, I like to read these books that, or listen to these books from people that, that do that. Tammy Duckworth is another one I just listened to. She's a um, Senator from Illinois, a recent Senator who was also a Black, Black Hawk helicopter pilot um, that crashed and, and lost both of her legs. Um, she's definitely her whole life, not just during her Senate career, but is definitely a, like, this is who I am and this is what I'm doing. So I would say women specifically that do that are something that, that I aspire to do. And it's a lot easier said than done. <laughs> right. <laughs> I hear you as a fellow people pleaser, recovering. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, that's so cool. And I think like that's like that when you listen to those audiobooks, like or you know, read them or remember, like it gives you a new perspective, right? And kind of like a shot in the arm of like, okay, I want to do those things. Yep. And it's always a reassurance too that like it's okay to be who you are. It's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to expose yourself. You know, um, we say those things a lot and I think it kind of always just goes over, but to hear it reinforced and to hear some examples of how it's been done helps to kind of start to make it sink in a little bit more. I mean, I I have a long ways to go in that, but I would say those, those books have kind of helped me to, to work on that a little bit. Right. Well, and I think uh, nobody ever arrives in that department. Like it's always (laughs) driving. So like we all have a long ways to go. (laughs) We probably do. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Okay. So I will close on a lighter note uh, with some rapid fire questions. So we'll go a little Brene Brown style here and do some rapid fire questions. So right up your alley, what is your favorite home improvement task? uh anything that's carpentry related okay so like sawing um yeah deck building framing um like something I, I like that because it uh it requires some mental planning thinking through measuring figuring out where the pieces are going to go um before you even get started oftentimes you even have to drop some little plans for yourself um, and then it moves into the, the sign and the assembly. But I, I like the thought process that goes into that before you start doing the work. Concrete work, my experience was it's just labor, extens- labor intensive and beats the crap out of your back. <laughs> I know it's just going to be heavy, right? Like it's yep. going to be heavy, whatever you're doing. <laughs> yep. So what's your least favorite task then? Um, digging holes <laughs> or moving dirt. So, and that kind of goes along with the, con, you know, doing grading by hand for the driveway, terrible. Um, digging holes to put the deck foundation on, digging holes to put fence posts in, terrible. Not my favorite. Yeah, no fun. <laughs> um, okay, so it's Saturday morning and you have the whole day to do whatever you want. What does that look like? Um, I think I had this question in a professional coaching session I had this summer. Uh, and I, I think what, it, what I ended up doing is um, if I was at home, it would start with some coffee um, with my wife, Dawn, and then it would probably move into a bike ride for, you know, a good half of the morning, um, stop at a brewery, maybe midway, uh, finish with a brewery at the end, can't have too many beers in the middle. Um, and, uh, you mentioned, I like to smoke meat. I also like to eat other people's smoked meat. So maybe find, you know, a post-dried barbecue there. Um, and then maybe after that, you know, go see some, some live music. Love that. So where would be, um, your favorite place to get smoked meat in either Ames or Des Moines area? Um, so Cornbread in Ames okay. is a somewhat newer place, but they have a really creative take on some smoked meat. Um, Des Moines, I'm struggling because I haven't, they've had some turnover in their barbecue scene down there since I, since COVID and I haven't really done that. I mean, Woody's Smokehouse used to be the best over on Cottage Grove, but that's turned over. I'm not a huge fan of Smokey D's though. I know okay. some people are, but. Okay. It's just a a little much too, too much bulk production for me. Gotcha. Okay. Oh, Jethro's overpriced and not very good in my opinion. Okay. (laughs) So sorry. I don't have a great Des Moines answer except what, what I remember with Woody's. So. Well, you got a great nugget there with cornbread and Ames. Yes. Yes. Cornbread (laughs) and Ames. I'll promote that. Okay. So then after your bike ride, you're going to a show. What would be a favorite band to go see? Oh gosh. Um, I mean, I, I, I have many like old time favorite bands. I, I'm a huge fan of the Indigo Girls. If you lean towards the arena rock side, I really love U2 and Bruce Springsteen. But um, I mean, what's so fun most of the time is like to see somebody you've never seen before. And maybe you've never even heard their music before. And like your first exposure to them is 
in a live environment. Um, so I, I like bluegrass music that, that the banjo kind of comes from that. Sure. Um, so I, I really like seeing those styles of band live for the first time ever. That's a great point that there's nothing like that, right? When you hear like mm -hmm. the first few chords or like the first few words or whatever chord. What yep. It's all, yeah. <laughs> Ooh, <I like. laughs> okay. Brand new. This is the last question. So you're driving in your car and you have three options. What, which one would you typically do? So driving with no radio on, no music. Two, your radio is cranked. Or three, you're singing and dancing with the radio cranked. Oh, <laughs> um, three, I think. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, I do it. like, yeah, I love to dance. I love music, but I also love, love to dance quite a bit too. My 40th birthday, we had a, this pre-COVID, but we had a huge dance party with a bunch of tunes I'd pulled together of my favorite dance mixes. So yes, I love to dance. Yeah. That's the best. I love that. Yes. And I feel like sometimes, and maybe this is because we're in our 40s, but I feel like sometimes people are like, man, I don't want like the people around me when I'm driving, they're going to see that I'm singing and dancing. No, I'm, we're the first people up at weddings to dance almost all the time. Like we, we, be, we beat the younger crowd out to the floor usually. <laughs> I love it. That's living life. I swear that is just living life. So yeah. Anyway, that is all I have, Holly. So I really appreciate you taking the time. And I feel like I have learned some stuff about mechanical engineering, about smoking meat and about so many other things. And I just really appreciate you taking this time to sit down and kind of share some of yourself and share about your engineering background and everything else. So thanks so much for being here. Thank you. It's been great. And I hope your listeners appreciate this. 